Today on the podcast, what is and isn't going on in the world of big law. We've got associates getting paid to not work, a reverse British invasion, and a rainmaking partner who turned down millions of dollars to become a traffic court Zoom judge. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. So it's been a while, probably too long, honestly, since we've checked in on the world of big law on this podcast. So today we thought we'd feature three recent Bloomberg Law stories that show the good, the bad, and the weird from the industry. Well, not so much the good, but definitely the other two. In a bit, we'll hear from Bloomberg Law's Roy Strom about Stephen Swedlow, an extremely well-compensated partner at Quinn Emanuel, who left it all to become the lowest judge on the totem pole in a downtown Chicago courthouse. We'll also hear about why the UK's so-called Magic Circle law firms are struggling to fend off their transatlantic rivals, and why some are considering just throwing in the towel. That's from reporter Mahira Dayal. But first, we'll talk about financial troubles at firms here in the U.S., We've known for a while now that after years of breakneck expansion, the legal industry is contracting. Bloomberg Law reporter Megan Tribe has been regularly writing stories about layoffs at this firm or that firm. In fact, we had her on this podcast late last year to talk about that and why it was happening. But now Megan is covering a different cost-cutting measure at one major firm. It's offering incoming associates a substantial amount of money to delay their start dates by a year. Megan talks about why this is happening in a bit, but first, I had to take the opportunity to hold her accountable for her previous prediction. Okay, let's get started. Um, You were on this podcast about six or seven months ago, and at the time we were talking about layoffs in big law, and you said that even though it was bad, we would not see a return to the dark days of the Great Recession of the late 2000s, early 2010s. Do you stand by that statement? (laughs) Um, well, thank you for holding me accountable. Um, first off, um, but to your question, I think that prediction still stands. So while we are seeing layoffs, they aren't of the scale or the size that we saw, you know, in, in 2008 during the financial crisis, then really almost every law firm across the board was in some way affected. They either, you know, laid off, you know, lawyers, some by the hundreds and or also deferred um, incoming classes across the board. So what we're seeing now is is very different. I had a one um, recruiter tell me it was almost surgical. So far, uh, really the trend that we are seeing, layoffs and deferrals have really been focused on firms that have, you know, a, a heavy tech focus. So the likes of Cooley, Oric recently announced you know, trimming of their headcount and those that dramatically overhired in 2021. So Cooley, another example, was one of the top, I believe, three um, destinations for lateral hires in 2021, the other two being Kirkland and Goodwin Proctor, uh, both of whom have also resorted to layoffs in some fashion. You know, so we're seeing firms kind of trickle in, but the scale just isn't there. You know, I think um, that's something that needs to be kind of put in perspective that these aren't hundreds of lawyers that are being shown the exits. That's really, you know, in the 10s, 20s, 30s like that. Um, But also, you know, the other bit, too, is um, deferrals are happening, but they're not happening at the scale that we, you know, saw in 2008. 
Well, let's let's get more into those deferrals and let's specifically talk about Cooley because you had a really interesting story uh, about what Cooley is doing. They're offering their incoming associates $100,000 to delay the year that they would start at the firm, to, to delay it by a year. What's going on here? Why, why are they doing this and how unusual is this? Well, so it's a tactic that firms used back in 2008. So when they deferred classes, those deferrals essentially had to decide what to do during that year. So it's not completely unheard of that, you know, a firm would would do something like this. From Cooley's position, you know, a lot of it and what they've kind of really said publicly is that the demand for the work just isn't there. And they want to make sure that everyone has the work that they need to do to become a, a lawyer, you know, a, a budding, um, successful lawyer. So in offering this deferral, they're essentially keeping this class, which is an important bit for recruitment. Um, and also they don't lose that talent in their pipeline. Right, because you, we talked about this seven months ago, that a lot of firms realized that the, the massive bloodletting, the massive cutting that they did uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, left them at a talent deficit. So it sounds like this is a way to cut costs, but also hold on to that talent. Exactly. The two biggest expenses um, for a law firm are people and real estate. And this is a way to kind of mitigate that financial hit, at least for a, a, a small bit. You know, and Cooley is also offering, in addition to that deferral, also offering some incoming associates. So we should say, too, that this isn't for all incoming associates. This is really centered on their corporate associates, so associates that are coming into their corporate group. Um, so they're offering them, you know, the option to say, I, I want to change practices, you know, and giving them the opportunity to rank those practices that they would like to, to enter into and then start in January. Well, let, let's get into that because, you know, I think for for some people, you know, hearing, oh, you're going to give me $100,000 to do nothing for a year. Sounds great. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like, you know, that's not really the best way to start your career as a lawyer. Um, what is what are some of the trade-offs? You know, it sounds like it's not clear what some of these associates should do, whether they should accept this and take a year off or not accept this and continue, or if they do accept it, what they should do with that year. Can you get into that a little bit? Sure. Well, why don't we start with accepting the deferral, right? So if if you accept it, you know, then you the, the firm is allowing these associates to work so long as the work clears conflicts checks. So even if an associate has their heart set on corporate work, this could be a great opportunity for them to be able to rejoin the firm. So it gives them the opportunity to use that to, you know, perhaps try something different, you know, whether that be a clerkship or um, a pro bono opportunity or something different. But the case for not taking it um, and opting to perhaps go into a different practice, they are really, really interesting. You know, one recruiter um, mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, even if a firm maintains attorney class here for compensation purposes, their experience is not going to align with peers at other law firms. So shifting to another practice area will allow them to begin working and, and gaining that experience. Um, and even if an associate wants to do corporate work, they could join a team that's adjacent to that practice. 
and then eventually pivot. It sounds like this could, you know, it's it's a, a temporary decision. It's only a year, but it could affect the rest of their career. Potentially, yeah. I mean, I think it 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 could, but it also couldn't, right? It, this could be just a blip. Um, yeah. And again, I think it just kind of depends what the associate is looking for and, um, you know, where they eventually want to wind up. All right, Mihira, let's uh, now turn to you. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about tough times for law firms, law firms contracting, but you recently wrote a story about an area where law firms are expanding, or at least U.S. law firms are expanding, which is the U.K. Uh, it sounds like U.S. law firms are really taking a bite out of really storied U.K. law firms' talent pool. Uh, can you explain what's going on here? First, get into what the magic circle is for those folks who maybe aren't familiar with uh, the way they do things over, over there on that side of the pond. Sure. So there are a couple of things happening. Um, the magic law firms are sort of the elite UK firms, and they're Allen and Overy, Clifford Chance, Freshfields, Linklater is and Slaughter and May. They've sort of been around for a while and um, maybe own the UK market for <laughs> no better way of putting it. And then U- US firms like Latham and Kirkland have done work in the UK for several years. It's not necessarily new, but that competition has changed the way the UK firms do business. The US firms have picked up a lot of their work. They pay their lawyers more. Um, they have deeper pockets. Some of the UK firms have managed to sort of stay above the fray, like Slaughter and May, which is one of those magic circle firms, hasn't really entered that that rat race. And one of, one of the recruiters I talked to for this story said the reason it works that way is they've sort of marketed themselves as elite. They don't necessarily play into the deals market um, the way other UK firms are doing, which is by trying to go head-to-head with the US firms. And they have longstanding client relationships with clients that wouldn't necessarily want to move to a US firm. On the other hand, we have Allen and Overy, which is merging with Sherman and Sterling. And that's going to give them access to the US market. So it seems like at the same time, the US firms are entering the UK and trying to sort of eat up that market share the UK firms are also trying to move into the US. And so in both ways, um, firms are trying to expand uh, either way. And the US firms are maybe more successful in moving into the UK because they're just able to, they have the scale, they have the money, and it's a much easier task. Yeah. Reading your story, I got the sense that it's really just an arms race. And I guess not really an arms race, more of a money race, uh, and that the UK firms are losing. What are they trying to do? It sounds like they're trying to sort of keep up with their U.S. firms and and they're having trouble doing that. So one report that I cite in the story, which I think is a good one, is from a recruitment firm in the U.K. called Fox Rodney. And they have a stat that I thought was interesting. They say that the Magic Circle firms hire three times as many partners last year than they did in previous years. And the reason for that is because U.S. firms have entered and are are poaching everyone. And so they have to hire more than they than they have in previous years. And one recruiter said they're even hiring people from firms they otherwise wouldn't have touched. And they aren't being as selective because it's more difficult for them to retain people. One reason for that is because the U.S. firms pay more. So they'd have to match that. And then on the flip side, U.S. firms pay more, but they have tougher culture. They have longer hours and it's difficult to work there. So, you know, the UK firms are trying to sort of play up their strengths, which is, well, we could be a better place for you to work, even though we don't pay as much. And 
you know, that may not be going very well. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the other thing that I was surprised about with your story is that based on the folks that you spoke with who are sort of legal industry observers, it sounds like they're kind of suggesting or maybe recommending that some of these UK law firms kind of wave the white flag and just sort of give up and and engage in a merger with a US counterpart. Are things really that bad that, you know, some of these magic circle firms, these kind of very prestige UK firms should just kind of, you know, stop trying to compete and give in? Well, there are different ways to compete. Um, Freshfields, for example, has done sort of a, a slightly different thing where it's picking up people slowly. It's hiring one or two partners at a time, um, and that can be slower and more expensive. You know, Allen and Overy is obviously taking the plunge and going in for a merger, which is a quicker way to enter the U.S. market. And um, one law firm consultant explained this to me in a sort of easy way, which is that if you're hiring a team, you're hiring a practice that's up and running. You don't have to do as much. They have their clients. And if you're hiring one person, there's a longer ramp up time and you don't necessarily know what they're bringing. So for that reason, it's it's much smarter. It's easier to hire either a full team or in this case, merge. Right. Well, although, of course, as you note in your story, that there's, you know, there are risks to any merger and there are lots of risks to international mergers. Uh, so it's not like it's, you know, even uh, merging is like sort of the solution to the problems. Right. No, it, that's definitely true. Um, I mean, one big problem that these firms are going to have is, is client conflicts, which can be tricky with very large firms merging anyway. It's, it's difficult in the case of Allen and Overy and Sherman and Sterling. Um, partners are going to be upset. If you're a UK partner at Sherman and Sterling, it's, it's unclear what your practice is going to look like when you're merging with one of the large UK firms. You would assume that the, let's say, the, the deals lawyers for Sherman and Sterling sitting in New York are not going to be very affected by this, um, and they're likely important in this merger but for others, you don't really know what your job is going to look like, and not everyone's going to be happy with what the new firm, new leadership is is going to piece out to be. Okay, finally, Roy, let's turn to you. And you have kind of a wild story about someone who was climbing the ladder of big law and then just jumped off that ladder in a very strange way. Tell me about Stephen Swedlow. Who is he? Who was he? And who is he now? <laughs> well, he's the same person he was before. Well, that's true. That's true. But he's he's the same person, but he's doing something very different. Yeah, for sure. So Stephen Swedlow was a top partner at Quinn Emanuel, which is one of the largest law firms in the country and one of the most profitable. And uh, he wasn't an ordinary partner at the firm. He was a very successful one. He was a relationship partner with Qualcomm, the U.S. chips giant, handled a bunch of large cases for them. He also represented a group of health insurers in a lawsuit against the federal government that resulted in the Supreme Court ordering the government to pay $12 billion. Uh, and for that one case alone, his law firm earned $185 million in, in fees. So this guy, I mean, Steve, he, this guy is, is a rainmaker. You know, is it, is it, I mean, that's an overused term, but is it fair to call him a rainmaker? Oh, very much so. Yes, he was, he had a lot of work when he left. You know, he kind of doled it out to his former partners at Quinn Emanuel. And I should say he left to spend nearly a million dollars of his own money to run for a seat as a Cook County judge, which is uh -huh. downtown Chicago. And like all new judges in downtown Chicago, 
he started in traffic court where he heard most of his cases by Zoom in a in an empty courtroom and handled uh, drunk driving trials. And that's where he's been for most of the past six months. I, th- I think it really bears repeating. We have a big law rainmaker who brings in, you know, millions and millions of dollars of business, spending a million dollars of his own money to become a judge. And now he's doing Zoom traffic court. Why, why did he do this? Why did he make this career choice? I think he had a number of reasons. He, he definitely wanted a sort of, lack of a better term, a better work-life balance. Uh, he was flying around the country doing trials. And he said that Big Law took up all his excess mental capacity and time. And now he drives a few miles to the same place every day. And it's a sort of regular nine to five and like you mentioned, he was a rainmaker at Quinn Emanuel. And with that, you make a lot of money. So he had he'd been a partner there for about 11 years. And the average Quinn Emanuel partner over that time would have made more than $50 million in profits, according to industry data. So he said he was no longer motivated to make as much money as possible. And one of the Really interesting things he said was that a lot of big law partners come up with a sort of amount of money that they think they'd need in order to be able to walk away. And he said he came up with a number, he got to it, and then he made up a new bigger number. And then he got to that number and he actually did walk away. He thinks most big law partners just keep making up new bigger numbers. Yeah, they keep moving the goalpost. For him, I guess he just said, the goalpost is here, I'm not moving it. And once he gets there, he's out. Yeah, he moved it once, and then he stuck to it. He also has uh, twins who are in fifth grade, and he wanted to be able to spend more time being an active parent in their life. Obviously, they live in Chicago, and and he wanted to spend more time with them, and he says he cooks dinner for them most nights now. That's wonderful. Uh, however, I get the sense this is not his ultimate goal, is to you know adjudicate traffic tickets on Zoom. Uh, it seems like what he really wants to do is – uh, hear civil trials. Is he happy with how his move is going or does he have any regrets? He said he thinks about the decision a lot, uh, especially when he gets his new paycheck. I would say that he genuinely seemed to be enjoying his new job. I mean, I saw him sort of joking around with his clerk and he was engaged and having fun and he didn't view the cases as minor. He says that, you know, the cases he's hearing impact people's lives in a serious way. And they're, you know, in many cases, the most important legal issue they might ever face. So he takes the job seriously. He learned how to decide these DUI cases. And he was volunteering to take more of these live trials from his fellow judges. He liked the human sort of aspect of it. And I I also got the sense that he's kind of playing the long game, that he's willing to stick it out until he gets a a better assignment and gets more seniority where he can get hear the kind of trials he wants to hear. Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, that is his long-term goal. He wants to be hearing major civil trials, the type of cases that he used to bring. And that is his goal to progress through the court system to do that. And uh, the interesting thing is that that decision is out of his hands. He, the chief judge in Cook County makes every decision about where every judge works Swedlow has no guarantee of making it to where he wants to go. I think given his background, it kind of makes a lot of sense that down the road he would hear those types of cases, but it is no guarantee. It sounds sounds like Swedlow may need to 
strategically make a new best friend in the uh, chief judge of of Cook County if he wants to <laughs> realize his dreams. Yeah, I'm sure all these Cook County judges are, are try to be cozy and and try to be nice to the chief judge. But I I think. So far, I did not get the sense that he was sort of ruining his decision. I mean, it's brand new for him. He, he said that he viewed it as he was in a new system with new criteria for success, and he was just going to try to achieve in that new system. And, you know, big law partners don't, they view that as sort of the mountaintop, and he did. He does sort of view that as one mountaintop, but just because you had success in one area doesn't mean that that's all you can do. And he said that maybe sometimes lawyers don't view it that way, but that's how he thinks about it. And I think certainly if he makes it to that position where he's hearing major civil trials every day, he'll, he'll definitely view his decision as a good one. That was Bloomberg Law reporter Roy Strom. Before that, you heard Mahira Dial talking about law firms in the UK and Megan Tribe talking about associates at the firm Cooley. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, We're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive. They can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right. This can't be fair. How can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.